Tēnā koutou, no mai, haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tang. Tonight, one of the most important decisions this government will ever make. New Zealand will move out of Alert Level 4 lockdown at 11.59pm on Monday, April 27, one week from today. But what about the economic consequences? We'll ask the Finance Minister about help for businesses that can't pay rent, and he tells us when he thinks sport will be back. Then, the plight of motel owners in our tourism hotspots, where some are taking in former prisoners to survive. At the moment, the majority of us are running at zero. No income whatsoever. This is do or die for the motels. Cabinet has decided New Zealand will spend another week at alert level four as we work to eliminate COVID-19 in New Zealand. Some scientists wanted a longer lockdown, but there has also been massive pressure to get the economy moving again. A short time ago, I asked the Finance Minister Grant Robertson how the government weighed up those factors and reached its decision. Well, you know, we took into account the, the things that the Director General of Health and the Prime Minister have been saying for some time now, whether we could have some confidence that we were breaking the chain of transmission, uh, making sure that we were confident about our testing, our contact tracing ability, the capability of the health system. And we also considered economic matters as well. And we've been saying from the beginning that the best thing for the New Zealand economy is to get on top of the public health side of this crisis. So we put all of those things into the mix together and you're right we had people telling us that we should be extending out level four by many weeks we had people telling us that we should be lifting it straight away on Wednesday I think we got the balance about right with the decision we made what will it take to get New Zealand to alert level two well, a continuation of the fantastic work that New Zealanders have been doing in Alert Level 4, carrying on Alert Level 3, so that we, we stick to the rules, we continue to break the chain of transmission, we see those case numbers come down further and further, we're able to get on top of any, any cases that do emerge through our contact tracing, we see the spread of testing and we're testing you know, across the population and into different vulnerable groups. If we can see all of those trends continuing, then we're on a path to be able to get out of Level 3. I want to consider Australia's position in all of this. They have similarly low levels of per capita COVID-19 cases and deaths, certainly at least compared to other developed economies. But of course, the restrictions on business in Australia aren't as firm as they are in New Zealand. Why do you think that our approach is better? Well, you know, in the end, uh, I don't want us to turn into one of those sort of normal trans-Tasman rivalries. Both countries, relatively speaking, are doing well when you look around the world. Uh, from our perspective, it's about doing it once and doing it right, being able to keep on a, on a continuous path so that we don't have to spend mm. a long period of time with, with significant restrictions. And I've certainly heard Australian politicians talk about, you know, restrictions on, for example, the opening of bars and, and, and restaurants lasting well out into the latter part of the year. We don't want to be in that position. We want to do this once, do it right, move through the level steadily. And, you know, we'll see at the end, history will judge, but I'm very confident in the position that we've taken. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, Australia has chosen to allow some, some industries to operate that have been shuttered in New Zealand. Construction, for example, is allowed to continue in some circumstances in Australia. So perhaps the short-term economic shock might not be as significant when compared to New Zealand. 
Yeah, I think if you look at the scenarios that the Treasury uh, put out last week, the reality is that between Level 4 and Level 3, a combination of both of those working through gave us the very, very best outcome. What we don't want is the yo-yo effect where we go down mm. levels and have to bounce back up again and restrictions come in, and that just adds to uncertainty. Um, even bouncing from Level 4 to Level 2 and then having to go back up, all of that would have, you know, delivered, I believe, a worse outcome, and the scenarios tell us a worse outcome than the one, the path that we're following at the moment. But look, the good news, Jack, is that from next Tuesday, those construction activities, uh, manufacturing, forestry, you know, big parts of our productive economy can come back on stream. And this week, those businesses can get themselves prepared and ready so that, that they can go gangbusters from Tuesday of next week. Minister, the number one issue we're hearing from businesses at the moment, and particularly uh, small to medium-sized enterprises, is an issue around rent. Cash flow has obviously completely dried up. You've provided some significant assistance to business and the wage subsidy is of course still available but can you tell us specifically why you haven't provided some relief for commercial rent? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the wage subsidy has provided over $10 billion now to New Zealand businesses and is definitely helping them with their concerns around how they keep their staff attached. We've also provided a number of other avenues for businesses to be able to improve their cash flow. The, the loss carryback scheme we announced last week that's mm -hmm. worth about $3 billion to businesses, the bank loan guarantee scheme, uh, the other tax changes that we've made. But when it comes to commercial rent specifically, what we did last week was ensure that you could not be a victim um, for 30 days and we did that so that we can get an orderly uh, set of arrangements. Actually right around the country commercial landlords and, and tenants have been coming to constructive arrangements and that's what that announcement was about last week was saying listen this is not going to be about anyone being thrown out this is actually about how do we make sure we can get a good arrangement. Having said all of that we're continuing to work on what we can do for businesses to help them through this period of time and we'll continue to look at all the options available, but I really urge those businesses to take up the elements of the scheme mm. that are there. Maybe if you talk to your bank a few weeks ago, go back now, because that business loan guarantee but scheme's up and running, and it should be available for a lot of those small businesses. Yeah, of, course, of course, we all acknowledge that there, there are significant options available for business at the moment, but I suppose if you look at the time frame of COVID-19, March had some cash flow. It's the April rents where the squeeze is really coming on these SME operators. A lot of them were looking to you last week for more support in this rental, uh, in this rental space. Is there something like a subsidy that you might consider in the coming weeks, for, particularly for those smaller businesses? Yeah, look, we are looking at what is possible there, and obviously, as we're both agreeing, mm -hmm. there's been a lot of resource gone in, but we, we haven't stopped the work program. We're continuing to talk to small businesses. We're continuing to talk right across the sector. And, you know, and, this and is, considering as, a subsidy, has been said just to many, be clear. many times... We're considering a range of options, and as we've said many times, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. We've got to look at how we make you know, sustainable contributions to keeping people employed, to keeping businesses running. We've got billions of dollars going out, but that hasn't stopped us from looking at what more might be possible. I appreciate that local governments are independent, but what is your advice to local government leaders with regards to rates increases? 
Look, you know, th those decisions are completely up to local government, and many of them have got services that they want to keep providing and that they've budgeted mm. for these rate increases. But they'll also, those local government politicians, be weighing up the fact that many of their uh, ratepayers are not in a position to handle big increases. So I'd just ask those local government leaders to, to think carefully about what they can do, balance that against the importance of the services that they provide, and, and come to some pragmatic decisions about it. But this is not going to be a situation where central government mm. rides across the top of those democratically elected local governments. Um, we're here doing what we can, and I'm sure those local government politicians will be thinking just the same way about how they can help their, their residents, their ratepayers yeah. uh, sustain. The government is, of course, borrowing heavily to get through this crisis, and, and it seems uh, that at least in the political sense, it's well accepted that's what we need to do right now. But when do we start talking about how we pay back this debt. Are you concerned that younger generations are going to be lumped with significant debts for decades to come? Yeah, well, look, you know, at the moment the focus has to be on how we support New Zealand and New Zealanders to get through this. And the really good news is that we went into the strong with our net debt down under 20% of GDP. And that gives us the room to be able to, to make these significant contributions to supporting New Zealand businesses and households and still end up at the other side in a much mm -hmm. stronger position than the rest of the world. The time will come when we will begin to have to think about how we return to some kind of more sustainable fiscal position than that. And there'll be a mix of options available to, to us as a government and future governments for how to do that. But for now, the best thing we can possibly do is use the strong position we had going in to give us a strong position coming out the other side. Will we have to broaden the tax base? Yeah, the tax system will undoubtedly be one of the things we'll consider in the future as to how we deal with this. Uh, you know, it'll be important when we, when New Zealand comes to the point of, of getting to a more sustainable fiscal mm. position that we look at the range of options available, and clearly the tax system will be one of those. We'll also be looking overall at the balance of spending and making sure we're investing in the productive side of the economy to, to lift the incomes that are coming into New Zealand. But I think, Jack, you'll understand that those decisions are a little way down the track. We've got about three waves of work underway at the moment. You know, the immediate fight against the virus, positioning ourselves for a recovery, and then making sure we look at the overall settings of the New Zealand economy. As we do more of that third mm. wave of work, we'll be talking more then about where we end up with this in the years to come. But for now, I believe we're doing the right thing by making sure we've got the money available to support New Zealanders. Have you been talking to sports administrators about when sport will return? Are we looking at alert level two or do we need to wait until alert level one? Yeah, so we've got that work underway right now. And, and I'd like to think in alert level two, we can look at certainly competitive sports of some forms coming back. Uh, but we've got to work that process through with the public health people, make sure we've got a situation where, where it's safe both for the people involved and the wider community, uh, make sure we recognise some of the other restrictions that will still be around then. But as a, as a huge mm. sports fan and as the sports minister, Jack, I'm really keen to see that happen. Um, we've just got to work that through over the the coming weeks. And I know the sports themselves are thinking about that a lot. One thing we can say for sure is there will still be restrictions on gatherings, and so um, mm. they may not have the crowds that they had, but I'm certainly hoping that we'll see them on our screens before too long. Grant Robertson speaking from Parliament a short time ago. Contact tracing is going to be critical in the coming months, but is our system up to scratch? Next, the expert who's been raising concerns about our contact tracing capacity with her advice.
Hoki mai anō, welcome back to Q&A. For the last fortnight, epidemiologist Dr Aisha Verrill has been talking to us on Q&A about the importance of contact tracing. After she raised concerns with us about New Zealand's contact tracing capacity, the Ministry of Health had Dr Verrill audit their contact tracing systems. Dr Aisha Verrill joins us now live. Tēnā koe, welcome back to Q&A. What did you think of the government's decision today? So I, th I think that was probably the right decision, um, at least from the health perspective. I think there's uh, a, um, improvements needed in the contact tracing process. And I think as what the most important thing is particularly that shift from level three down to level two is that your contact tracing has to be perfect for that. And so I think looking ahead, I see we can make these two other changes recommendations as the government has indicated they would. Okay, we're having a, a little bit of a technical glitch there, but hopefully uh, the ultra-fast broadband will hold for the next few minutes, Dr Verrill. Was your personal preference that we might consider staying at alert level for, for a couple of weeks? I know that uh, data modellers at Auckland University had suggested maybe a two-week extension would have been more appropriate from a public health perspective. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a modeller, and so I don't, um, I don't really... Um, uh, appreciate all of all of those nuances. I think the critical thing is having really good contact tracing mm. when our bubble size gets bigger, and that primarily happens between level three and level two. Well, your audit into public uh, into contact tracing has been publicly released today. You found that twelve public health units, as they are known, weren't ready for the contact tracing that is needed to respond to COVID nineteen. Why weren't they ready? So uh, overall, the public health units were um, struggling with the workload when we went into lockdown. And that was because of the large number of people coming back from overseas with COVID-19 and the large number of contacts they had. Um, the point is, with COVID-19, the numbers can grow really quickly. So we need to have boosted public health units, but also that surge capacity. That means we can respond to an outbreak. Who is responsible for those public health units not having had that surge capacity up to this point? Yeah, so that's really unclear actually, um, whether or not that uh, resides with the government or, or with the public health units, which often are across multiple different DHBs. I mean, the ministry uh, took action earlier in the outbreak and set up this national close contact uh, service within the ministry. So there was central action. And I did my audit when they had had uh, when that service was about three weeks old. So it's really the first opportunity mm. to see what they had built and to see how it was working. Might fewer DHBs have made for a better response? I know what you're driving at, and I, um, but I just, uh, working closely with our public health units, as I do, you can't substitute for an amazing medical officer of health who knows your community really well, who understands... Um, where there are deprived pockets of your community who knows all the rest homes and places and outbreaks there. So I think local medical officers of health and the staff that work mm. with them are really important. I think the issue is around national coordination, national support for surge capacity and an IT system. We can't ask these tiny public health units to make their own, um, own databases for contact tracing. The government is pumping significant amounts of money into these public health units, $55 million to be exact. Right now, mm. as of today, 
Is our contact tracing up to standard? It wasn't when I did my report a week ago, and I haven't heard more than that. And I hope that the funds described in the government's uh, release today will mean that we'll, we'll hit, that, hit that mark as we go to lower levels, yeah. So what would have happened if we moved to alert level three this week? Well, so I think currently we're having single-digit case numbers a day, and mm. you could imagine if we were really lucky we could keep fighting those little fires across our public health units. But the thing is, you only need to let one get away from you and then you've got a big problem. And growth in, in the outbreak and the case numbers would be exponential. So unusually in healthcare, here's a situation where you need to plan to have much more excess capacity than you ever hope to use. Can you talk to us a little bit more about moving from alert level three to alert level two and what we need to be cautious of? I think the main thing is that when you do that, your bubbles grow. And so the number of contacts that each case has grows, and that means contact tracing operations get much more complicated. You might be going from, like at the moment, maybe each case, if they're staying home, would only have three or four contacts, whereas that could be 20 contacts and some of them in anonymous venues like cafes where you wouldn't know the people sitting, sitting next to you. Uh, if we're at level two. So all of those things add to the complexity of contact tracing as, as we go down to those lower levels. And that's why we need a lot more time uh, in terms of people time, but also really good data systems to make the process much faster. With the investment in contact tracing that the government has announced, plus the current trend of COVID-19 cases in New Zealand, do you think it's feasible that after we've been at alert level three for a fortnight and the government reviews our, uh, our alert level, do you think it's feasible at that stage we could move to alert level two safely? Yeah, I think it is feasible um, uh, once all the recommendations in my report are implemented. <laughs> I think the, um, I think the um, other thing that's really on my mind is this concern about asymptomatic cases and um, that's what we're testing for when we're testing at supermarkets to find people who are healthy, don't have symptoms, and yet might have the, have the virus. And I think one of, the, one of the things is, so far, we haven't, haven't found many of them. And also, if we did, it's not really clear how much they transmit. So I think we're really, this is an area where the evidence isn't very clear. Mm. And I think we need to be starting to get as, as a country, low case number, the meaning of those of those people. Dr Aisha Verrill, I think, given the state of the broadband, we might finish things there. Thank you so much for your time and expertise, as always. We really appreciate it. And that report is well worth a read. If you think it sounds easy to contact, trace someone, to work out every person they've been in contact with, just think about when you get a phone call from an unknown number. That's one of the problems that her report identifies. People don't want to answer the phone. Do you think the government's made the right call today? It is a tough one, but we're keen to hear your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. New Zealand First Minister Shane Jones is here next, and then two big thinkers, Francis Valentine, the Tech Futures Lab CEO, and the head of Main Freight, Don Braid, with their thoughts on getting Aotearoa back to business. And as our tourism industry is decimated by COVID-19, the motel owner with a message for cashed-up baby boomers. This is the opportunity to save New Zealand, you know, by coming to places like 
Rotorua to help spend the kids' inheritance, you know? My worry is that a further week is a case of the medicine potentially being worse than the cure. The harm of lockdown that is being greater than actually coming out of it. That is National Leader Simon Bridges, who says the government hasn't done the groundwork to move out of lockdown. One of those charged with making the decision today was New Zealand First Minister Shane Jones, who joins me from Kirikiri. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Greetings, folks. With all of the information presented to you today, what was your personal preference about when to move off Level 4? Oh, no, I had clearly reflected to the Prime Minister that we, have to, we had to navigate the four weeks with integrity, and I was very keen for us to uh, make a move at least to Level 3. I've become increasingly concerned, although we may have achieved a silver bullet status medically, I don't want us to pay with gold economically forever and a day. How many people supported your decision in that Cabinet room? Oh, well, no, no, what happens in Cabinet is tapu, and uh, unless Winston Peters or the Prime Minister talk about it, then you, you will uncharacteristically not get a word from me. I thought this government was all about transparency, Minister. C can we safely assume that New Zealand First MPs were on the same page? No, look, today's uh, decision reflected uh, abroad, and uh, as you would want to expect from your politicians... A, uh, a hearty debate, but we're solidly behind what the Prime Minister announced on our behalf to our fellow Kiwis this afternoon. In your ministerial capacity, you are considering a list of shovel-ready infrastructure projects. What is shovel-ready and how will you prioritise them? Well, the figure in terms of the co uh, commercial value of the projects is over $100 billion. A lot of those projects belong in a Disneyland movie. So it's important that the criterion delivers for the job seekers and the Kiwis who, quite frankly, are very angsty. Am I still going to have a job? Can I maintain my mortgage? So Mr Mark Binns and his fellow travellers will rationalise that project list and bring them back to the government, especially those projects that we can get underway absorbing jobs. They could be projects that are snared already in the system, Jack, or they could be projects that do need some Crown assistance, and that will be ready to go to the Cabinet Ministers dealing with the budget in mid-May. Do you think nationwide intercity rail, commuter rail, would satisfy the criteria? Well, quite a few of the projects I think that we as politicians may want to see may require the... Um, the cleansing effect of an election campaign. And my mandate from Grant Robertson was to identify, and the Prime Minister and Winston Peters, identify with Phil Twyford projects that can be stood up with alacrity. And um, they are, there will be long-term nation-building projects mm -hmm. of an environmental, mm -hmm. economic, cultural, social nature. And I rather suspect that the long-term ones will have to, as I said, go through the maturation process of an election campaign. So that means maybe to nationwide commuter rail, but no definites? Yeah, look, um, I'm conscious that my colleagues, uh, parliamentary colleagues in the Green Party have uh, floated that, um, uh, that kite, 
and that's entirely up to them. But cabinet decisions will be driven by what we can do in the short term initially to offer relief. Right. And I do, uh, Jack, I do have a view about the economy, mate, that it's got inordinately uh, self-healing powers. And we've got to back the men and women who are key stakeholders in our economy. And I want to direct my attention as the infrastructure minister, Jack, to those areas where there's a genuine market failure so that the Crown can make all the difference. And in other cases where the economy can recover, just get out of the way. What's happening with the debate over whether or not to move Auckland Port? I know transport officials are supposed to provide you feasibility reports by next month. Could that be an option as you consider shovel-ready projects? Well, much to my chagrin, but not my surprise, the transport officials are unable to meet that deadline. Uh, I will, however, make available whatever information they have amassed. Look, uh, my leader and I have not lost our zest to effect the relocation of the port, but I think most Kiwis, after the COVID experience, genuinely want to see some short-term mitigation mm. steps taken by us as ministers to give them confidence. To be clear, that though... we come out of lockdowns, things will happen. They were due to provide you those reports next month. When are you going to get those completed reports? Well, they've missed the last deadline. It's, uh, the, the report that I enjoyed reading was the report that was served up before Christmas by Wayne Brown and his group. The officials went away to do various mm. testing. I actually have not seen the quality of their work. So it's going to be on hold. Are, are you going to see this information before the election? Yeah, I mean, I'm, in terms of what they've currently done in, in relation to effecting a move of the ports of Auckland further north or wherever, uh, we're going to demand the information that they currently have, but I'm giving mm. you a straight answer. In terms of the original time frame, they have been unable to meet it, partly because of COVID and for reasons mm. that uh, I look forward to them explaining to me. Let's talk about consenting. Will you need to ride roughshod over environmental and iwi concerns in order to get some of these big projects underway? And if that is the case, are your coalition partners prepared to make those sacrifices? Well, I have a message for iwi. Disproportionately, this unemployment uh, tanifa that we're going to see uh, rising will affect disproportionately Māori men and women. So I'm disinterested in any iwi who wants to deliver ideological lessons to me about us not caring for the environment. Our agenda is to avoid the economic and social carnage post-rogenomics in coming out of COVID. Now, in relation to any allegation that we've been capricious or arbitrary over the Resource Management Act processes, David Parker, who's an expert on the resource management and a very judicious politician, in contrast to others, is bringing us back proposals and I do hope those proposals enable some self-consenting activity to take place with an NZTA and Kiwi Rail so modest and risk, uh, low-risk low projects can just get underway without spending right. um, weeks and months in the delivery suite of territorial government. Minister, when borders reopen, should we try and attract more people to live in Aotearoa? Well, look, the borders aren't going to be open for any time in the, in, in the short to medium term, and uh, we're waiting, actually, to see what's going to happen around the world. But the last thing we want to do is go through uh, the sacrifice that we've just endured 
to import the uh, import the virus again. But look, for people who have immigration ideas and who want us to turn the immigration system into an opportunity to attract very rich uh, capital-laden applicants, I rather suspect that too has to go through the process, shall I say, of uh, the cleansing process of an election campaign. Finally, Minister, who pays for this? We are obviously borrowing billions of dollars to respond to COVID-19. Do you have concern that younger generations are going to be burdened with this debt for decades to come? Well, I was a young parent uh, in Rogernomics with three children. So I remember in a visceral way how difficult that was for my family. Uh, the major uh, adjustments, my parents had to move to Australia. So look, I do feel for the next generation, as our generation had to cope with Rogernomics. But I'd remind us that last year, Crown revenue was about 96 billion. There's no guarantee it's gonna stay there. But we are in quite a safe zone in terms of being able to borrow more dough. But the next generation, as I said, we may actually have enjoy silver bullet status, but my fear is the next generation is going to have to economically pay for it in gold. That's why we need to get people back working, strip red tape, mm. and uh, back those ideas that will cause the uh, economy to rapidly regenerate. Minister Shane Jones, tēnā Thank you for your time. We are starting a new segment on Q&A this week where we ask people on the front line of our economy what they need to get back to business. The segment is called, and this will shock you, Back to Business. It's a chance for employers, entrepreneurs, workers, everyone really, to speak directly to government. Loosely, the founder and general manager of Everybody Eats. We're a charitable dining concept that allows communities to come together around good food. We operate a permanent restaurant in Onihanga that's been forced to close under Alert Level 4, uh, and it's almost certain that we won't be able to operate under Alert Level 3. For us, our biggest concern is our rent. Our landlords have suggested the possibility of a rent deferment, but nothing yet of a rent abatement, which is what we really need. What we really need to get back to business is the alert level to come down to either two or possibly even one. Our whole concept is around bringing different people from the community together around good food, and we simply can't do that until the social distancing guidelines have been lowered. If you have a back-to-business message for our political leaders, email us at q tvnz.co.nz and put back-to-business in your subject line. One of those who intimately understands the pressure that comes with employing people and the challenges and potential opportunities that might come out of COVID-19 is Don Braid, the Group Managing Director for Main Freight. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Thanks, Jack. I wanted to begin by getting your thoughts on the government's decision today, deferring for effectively a week uh, the move from Alert Level 4 to Alert Level 3. What did you think of the decision? Oh, it's given us some optimism and some confidence. <clears throat> I mean, at least we know what the data is. We're not hanging around. Is it three? Is it four? So I think business in New Zealand can now start to plan for that time. Um, what I think the problem is, though, is we've still got ambiguity around the rules under level three. And listening, listening to Minister Jones, uh, not often I'd agree with what he's got to say, but I've got to say that he's right about getting business going again. And I think um, we should think about hammer-ready, not shovel-ready. What's the difference? 
Well, we need those small commercial projects even back into their housing build to be underway. That's where the trades are. That's where the small to medium-sized businesses are. Those are the people that are hurting right now. They're the ones that haven't had that cash flow through April. That's where the cash is important for the economy, and that's who we have to support. We, I've got to say, small retail as well. What sort of assistance might be available for small retail then? No, I don't think it's about assistance. And I think I hear what you had to say to Minister Robinson about uh, rent relief, and, and fair enough. But I think it's about getting them open. Mm. And, I, you know, I worry that the dairy could open, but the butcher and the produce shop couldn't open, or the small business, um, medium-sized business that... Uh, we've got to allow them to have some lateral thinking. They've operated in a safe way as individuals in this country for the last four weeks to get us to where we are now. Give them the freedom to op operate their businesses in a safe way, and I think that's good for the economy. The rules under Alert Level 3 make it pretty clear that if a business can have or operate contactless commerce with, uh, you know, between its operators and its customers, then it should be able to open. Of course, there are some exceptions to that. But where is the particular ambiguity that concerns you about Alert Level 3? Well, it's about <clears throat> what can open and what can't open. And I think those are the, the problems. I mean... Is it is the butcher allowed to open and, and does he take the order by phone and then deliver the meat at his doorway? Does that happen for the produce guy? Does that happen for the bike shop, for the exercise shop? I just think that needs to be made clearer. And I, I think we should ease up on those rules and allow small to medium-sized businesses to get up and running. It's all very well to say the manufacturers can start, but actually they've got to sell the product and for them to sell the product, someone's got to be buying it. And we need that freedom to start as quickly as possible. Can you tell us about your personal experience? How has Main Freight fared under Alert Level 4 and what will change at Alert Level 3? Uh, our protocols won't change. We'll continue to operate the business as we have been under Level 4. Um, we've been somewhat lucky in that we're an essential business, so we have been moving some freight domestically different regions around the world and they're all operating in a different environment you know australia's in sort of partial lockdown where they've had still good business flowing through the supply chain so that's helped us somewhat but definitely here in new zealand our tonnages are down probably you know 40 to 50 percent over these last three weeks do you expect that under alert level three those tonnages will significantly increase is it going to make much of a difference for you well, we've already seen some changes. The, uh, late last week, we were able to move non-essential freight to some customers who were able to accept it. Mm. And under this process, under Alert Level 3, it is essential and non-essential freight. But, of course, there's no point in moving non-essential freight if there's not retail uh, available to open. And I get that we have to be safe and we have to be able to run those businesses where we have contact um, points We know who's in the store and who's not. But I think we should allow those businesses to be able to make those decisions and give them the freedom and the lateral thinking that they'll bring to the table for the economy. Finally, I know some economists and political leaders 
see this as a reset point for New Zealand's economy. Do you see opportunity in the wake of COVID-19? I think there's lots of opportunity for New Zealand. I mean, with our borders closed, New Zealand Inc., it's important that New Zealand businesses support each other, is that New Zealanders look after New Zealand businesses in this situation. I think one of the other issues we need to be really careful, careful of is cash flow. And those larger businesses who are not paying their customers or their suppliers on time, they need to be paying on the 20th of the month every month to make sure that those smaller suppliers have positive cash flow. Those are opportunities to get underway. I hear a lot of commentators suggesting that, that things will change dramatically. I don't think so, not in the, in the short term. In the long to medium, medium to long term, maybe so. But life, need, we like meeting each other, we like doing our shopping, we like trading the way we have been. That's not going to change too much in the short term. Dom Braid from Main Freight. Tēnā thank you for your time. After the break, speaking of cash flow, it's do or die for our motel industry with thousands of owners struggling to pay the rent. They're pinning their hopes and their futures on a homegrown recovery. Kia ora te whanau, welcome back. From the far north, Te Tai Tokiro, to Rakiura, Stewart Island, you'll find them in almost every town. Motels small businesses that are a staple of our tourism industry. While everyone in the sector is feeling the pinch from COVID-19, it is particularly tough on small operators. For many, the only guests these days are sent from government agencies, homeless families and former prisoners. Here's Fena Owen. A tourist town without tourists means moteliers without an income. At the moment, the majority of us are running at zero, no income whatsoever. Ron Hunter is like most moteliers in New Zealand. They buy a lease on a motel for upwards of $600,000, then pay monthly rent to the landlord of between thirty dollars to $50,000. For the vast majority of moteliers and their families, their business is also their home. So what happens if that rent is not paid? They can move in. They can put a caretaker in, ride out the COVID-19 situation and then resell the business to another family. Uh, whereas the family that's in there have left with nothing at all. They're just out. This is do or die for the motels. Julie White is the CEO of Hospitality NZ, overseeing the hospo sector and accommodation providers. There are 2,000 motels in New Zealand, 600 hotels and 300 holiday parks. Over half of them have had to make staff redundant. If level three continues for more than two to four weeks, they may actually have to lay more people off. Over in Rotorua, our historic tourist mecca for over 150 years, motelier Mike Gallagher is trying to keep things going without any guests. The stress that that's brought on to, you know, to us and a lot of our colleagues has just been horrendous. This year, hotel occupancy in Rotorua has gone from 90% down to 2%. Motels would be around 75% in April. They're down to 8%. That 8% are Ministry of Social Development emergency housing clients, along with some homeless people waiting out their lockdown. For a lot of moteliers, they're, they're having to head down that track. 
I mean, for us personally, I mean, we'd, we would like to hold off as long as possible. Uh, there are some properties in town that have started accepting people from Wins. Um, unfortunately, that can come with some, uh, some consequences. Um, and I had a call from someone today who'd called the police twice for some guests that they've got. Um, but the other uh, side of it is I've also heard of people, another uh, property owner who's had them, and it's been a great success. And I understand corrections have asked some of those moteliers to take on former prisoners. Another market segment is, yes, yeah, so some moteliers are looking at working and accepting uh, recent released uh, corrections. Like the wider hospitality sector, the government has assisted moteliers with wage subsidies, tax and the guaranteed loan scheme. But unfortunately, 30% of the cost for moteliers is rent. So unless they get relief right now, because they haven't had any income for over six weeks now. A few days ago, Hospitality New Zealand wrote to Cabinet Ministers asking them to adopt a code of conduct for landlords working with tenants, very similar to what the Australians have just put in place. Without that code of conduct, there's no conversation sometimes. So, so you, they may just get an eviction notice? That's exactly right. The immediate issue for hotels is rates. We're pleading to the local councils who are still intending to issue local rates to actually put them on hold. And in Taupo, Ron Hunter is pleading with the government to create a level playing field with the motelier's arch rival, Airbnb. The other benefit that Airbnb have over motelier's is that right now they can turn their business around, they can just swivel and start becoming long, long or short-term accommodation providers again. 40,000 people are employed in our motels and hotels. In Queenstown, many of those workers are from overseas. How's that? Queenstown-based economist Benji Patterson has been tracking the potential economic and human fallout. There are many people that come to Queenstown for a few months, for a season. They do a lot of the jobs that Kiwis often don't want to do. Many of these people are stranded at present without the prospect of employment. And when we exit lockdown, there are increasing concerns that there could be some form of humanitarian crisis. Further north, Mike Gallagher is pinning his recovery on Kiwi baby boomers. This is the opportunity to um, save New Zealand, you know, by by coming to places like Rotorua to help spend the kids' inheritance, you know, that's, that, that's going to that's gonna be key to our, our survival. We're really going to rely on domestic tourism, and it's actually the moteliers who are going to be part of that recovery process and welcoming the domestic tourists. So it's really important that they get a hand up and are allowed to survive so we can help the whole of New Zealand recover. Ron Hunter has no bookings between now and October. His family doesn't know what the future will hold post-COVID, but Ron is trying to stay positive. There is an opportunity here. We're not sure what it is yet, but there is, and we'll find it. Fina Owen with that report. Stick about. We will have your feedback on the government's big decision today, and there has been so much of it after the break. We asked you what you thought of the government's decision to move out of Level 4 in a week. And it was a big tick of approval from the vast majority of you. 
Aidan Tavendale said, yes, I believe we've come this far as a nation in lockdown. Let's get it right first time and stomp it out properly. Robin Mulcrest said, yes, it was the only decision they could make at this point. It's only a few more days at level four. We can do this. And Camelia Lee says, I would have preferred an extra two weeks to really cement our gains this far. But I also understand mental health factors and the economy are important. Kumatu, that is us for this week. Thanks for watching. And Namahiki Akoto inga karere. Thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Stay safe. Get some appropriate exercise. Enjoy the elements on your face. Hey Tera Wiki. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9:25. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand on here.